0: This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. Well, I have struggled with loneliness in many points during my life. Uh, You know, I first struggled with loneliness as a child, and I still very clearly remember that pit in my stomach that would grow the closer my mom's car got to school when she dropped me off in the morning. And I was scared to go to school. I was scared of being alone. Uh, And as a shy, introverted kid, even though I wanted to interact with other kids, it was, it was hard to do so, and it was, took a long time to build friendships.
1: This is Dr. Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General of the United States, and he's talking to us about loneliness because he believes it's a serious public health threat, one that we don't talk about enough. When he was that shy little kid, Dr. Murthy says that he didn't talk about how he was
0: feeling, I never told my parents about it in all those years, even though I knew that they loved me unconditionally because I felt ashamed, as so many people do, about their struggles with loneliness.
1: Loneliness can have profound effects on our mental health, but also on our physical health. In a new advisory, Dr. Murthy warned that it's as dangerous as smoking and even more dangerous than obesity. Loneliness can lead to depression and anxiety, or even heart disease, stroke, dementia...
0: And this is because loneliness creates a stress response in our bodies. It has to do with the fact that thousands of years ago, when we were hunters and gatherers, our safety and well-being relied on our ability to exist in trusted relationships with each other. Because we could take turns watching around the fire at night and making sure that no one got attacked by a predator. Our
1: society has changed a lot since then, but our brains haven't.
0: When we experience loneliness today, we experience the same stress that we experienced thousands of years ago in the tundra when we were separated uh, from our group.
1: And over time, that chronic stress can be devastating. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Anahad O'Connor and I'm your guest host. It's Friday, June 2nd. Today, a conversation with the Surgeon General about the surprising public health threat facing our nation, loneliness, and what you can do if you're feeling lonely in your own life. I wanted to start by having Dr. Murthy define what loneliness actually is. Well, loneliness
0: is a feeling. It's a subjective feeling. And it's a feeling that the connections that we need in our life are greater than the connections we actually have. That's in contrast with isolation, which is a more objective measure of the number of people we have around us. Loneliness is something that manifests differently in different people's lives. It's very hard to tell from the outside if someone is lonely. And that's not just because people don't talk about it, because they feel a sense of shame around it. But it's also because in some people loneliness can manifest as sadness and withdrawal. In other people, it can look like anger, being short-tempered or irritable. So the manifestations are different, but I try to actually in my day-to-day life remember when I encounter somebody who seems to be you know irritable and angry or unpleasant in some way, or who seems to be somewhat disgruntled. I I try to remember that This is a person who might be struggling with loneliness.
1: Mm. And how much do we know about loneliness in America? Uh, I mean, you are the country's uh, chief doctor and you issued, you know, this really landmark report on loneliness. Is there data on how prevalent
0: loneliness is? How big of a problem is it in the United States? There is. And the data tells us that it's almost one in two adults in America who are experiencing measurable levels of loneliness, but it also tells us that it's not distributed evenly across the age spectrum. Some people think, oh, it's older adults who are probably the loneliest, but no. It turns out that it is young people who are experiencing the highest levels of loneliness. Now, this surprises people because they figure, well, young people are connected through technology all the time. How could they possibly be lonely? But whether or not we feel lonely is not about the number of connections we have. It's not about the number of people around us. It's about the quality of those connections. It's about whether we feel there are people in our life with whom we can show up and truly be ourselves, where we can be supported during times of distress, where we can be vulnerable and open, but we know that they'll be there for us and they accept us for who we are. That's what we all want. You know, I fundamentally believe that as human beings, we all have three critical needs that are, are universal across cultures. We all want to be seen and understood for who we are. We all want to know that we matter, and we all want to be loved. And when we feel that from people, even if it's just from a few people in our life, we may not feel lonely at all. But when I think about the people I've met all across America, who have told me that they struggled with loneliness. That included college students who were on campuses surrounded by thousands of other people, it included parents who led busy days, you know, in busy workplaces, yet they felt very alone. So again, this is about quality of connection, not quantity of connection.
1: Yeah, that really hits home for me. I mean, I can think of people in my own life, you know, friends and family who I've just grown distant from because You know, the world is such a big place, people spread out so easily. I have, you know, siblings who live all over the place. I have friends who've, you know, gone to distant places and it's just really hard to keep in touch with people and to maintain really close uh, quality friendships and to, you know, get in touch with people on a daily basis. Even though we're so interconnected, we're also in a way so distant from each other
0: nowadays. There are some important drivers of this that have cropped up relatively recently in human existence. You know, we, for example, do move around a lot more than we ever did. We change jobs more frequently. The organizations and institutions that historically brought us together in our communities from our churches and other faith organizations to recreational leagues to other civic organizations participation in all of these has declined over the last half century but we also know that technology has had a role here as well i'm a believer in technology i i use technology i spent seven years building a technology company I, i'm a believer but i also know that whether technology helps us or harms us depends on how it's designed and how it's used And while tech has added incredible efficiencies to our lives, I do worry that our phones and our use of social media in particular, I think, have often hurt our connection with one another and have replaced in-person, higher-quality connections with lower-quality online connections, where even though you may have more of those contacts, they somehow are less satisfying uh, than the higher-quality in-person contacts we used to have. Right. Now,
1: Dr. Murthy, we're just coming out of this pandemic that affected people, obviously, globally and had a huge impact on our social connections. Can you talk about what role it played in this epidemic
0: of loneliness? I think the pandemic increased isolation for many people. Many of our kids in particular tell me that that first year of the pandemic in particular, when they were not in school, when they were not seeing family and friends and loved ones, that was incredibly scary and that isolation really sunk in for many of them, we're still trying to pull out of that and figure out how to better care for our kids in the setting of that trauma and how to care for ourselves as well. But we have to recognize that loneliness was a fundamental problem in society long before the pandemic. We just didn't recognize how profoundly it was impacting our health and well-being and function. So yes, the pandemic made things worse, but if we really wanna address it, we have to get get serious about addressing the root causes that existed long before COVID-19?
1: After the break, we dig deeper into how technology is affecting children and teens and how parents can help their kids navigate their social lives on and offline. We'll be right back.
0: Podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. AI PCs built for business with Intel Core Ultra processors and Intel vPro are optimized for hundreds of AI apps and tools to boost user productivity. All with AI powered threat detection. Learn more at intel.com/itheroes.
1: Now, Dr. Martha, you talked about loneliness in children and teens. Um, you're a father of two children. You mentioned uh, I'm a dad of two children um many or a lot of kids really relied on social media during the pandemic but what advice do you have for parents of kids out there who are worried about the role of social media in all of
0: this well as a parent i'm worried too i talk to young people all the time around the country and they tell me three consistent things about social media they tell me that it makes them feel worse about themselves worse about their friendships but they can't get off it and I hear worries about from parents as well who, who ask me most consistently whether social media is safe for their kids. That's a single most common question I get from parents. It's a reason why yeah. I issued a Surgeon General's advisory on social media and youth mental health, because I looked at the data, I talked to experts, uh, I made sure that we went through thoroughly with our scientific team, all that's publicly known uh, about the impact of social media on our kids. There is growing evidence that social media use is associated with harms you know consider the fact that teens who use more than three hours of social media a day face double the risk of depression and anxiety symptoms hmm. consider also that ha- nearly half of adolescents say social media makes them feel worse about their body image this is deeply troubling to me as a parent who like all parents wants. Uh, you know, my kids to grow up and feel confident, to feel good about themselves, to feel empowered, uh, to pursue their dreams and to ultimately be successful. But if so, too many of, so many of our kids are feeling that their experience of social media makes them feel worse about themselves and worse about their friendships, that is a major, major red flag for us. So I am worried. To be clear, though, there are some kids who do benefit. From social media use Mm -hmm. we know for some kids social media can be a way to connect with family and friends more easily to express themselves authentically and creatively and to find community especially this is true for uh, kids who are groups that have historically been marginalized like lgbtq youth uh, and communities of color but we also know that even for those groups that seem to to have some added benefits some of them are also at greater risk of harm. Like we know that LGBTQ youth are more likely to be cyberbullied uh, on social media than other youth. So the bottom line is I worry about social media because while it's a mix of benefits and risks, the risks are actually quite concerning to me. And the lack of data that we have because researchers have not been able to get the data uh, in fully from technology companies to fully understand the impact of social media on kids. That worries me as well, because that makes me worry about what we don't know. Um, And that's why in the advisory that I issued, I'm calling not only for greater awareness about this, but greater action so that policymakers can step up and actually provide the kind of safety standards that we need for social media that we have for other products that kids use. But I'm also calling for action from technology companies, which need to design their platforms to optimize mental health right now many of these platforms are designed to maximize how much time our kids spend on them one thing i want to be absolutely clear on is we cannot 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 do what we've been doing for the last 20 years which is to place the entire burden of managing social media on the shoulders of parents because this is a new technology relatively speaking that's rapidly evolving that fundamentally affects how our kids see themselves how they relate to other people, how they see the world. And it's something that prior generations never had to contend with. And yet parents have had to manage this entirely on their own. It is time for us to have their backs. It's time for tech companies and policymakers to step up and take the actions they need to take to make sure that these platforms are safe for our kids. That's not asking too much. Uh, It's the very least that we should be able to do for parents and their children.
1: So, I mean, what I'm hearing as a parent is that social media really has a double-edged sword for children. Does it make sense for parents to maybe severely limit how much access their children have to social media
0: for, for their own safety? Number one, I would say if your child has not yet started using social media, I would consider delaying the age at which they do start, uh, past middle school if possible. Uh, that is easier said than done. It is what My wife and i are planning to do for our kids but i also know that it's hard to do this alone and so wherever parents can partner with other parents to put these sort of limitations in place it can not only help parents but it can help kids too. feel that they're not the only ones uh, who may not be allowed to join social media yet the second thing i would suggest is for parents whose kids are already on social media i recognize that that's a really hard thing to manage and it's also hard to know what entirely what your kid is doing uh, on social media but here, starting a conversation with your child about social media, about what platforms they're using, about how they're using it, what they tend to share, what they're getting out of it, how they're experiencing social media, that's actually very important because as a parent, we want to know if social media is making our, our child feel bad, as it is for many kids, unfortunately, or whether it's uh, you know extending certain benefits to them. We also want our kids to know what what to look out for in terms of red flags. We want them to know that if they're being harassed or bullied on social media, that's a time to to reach out to an adult, to to a parent, or to a teacher, and to ask for help. The last thing I'll mention is that for parents whose kids are already on social media, they can also draw boundaries around the use of technology in their children's lives, specifically to protect activities that are essential for their well-being, specifically sleep, physical activity, and in-person time with others. I think of these as creating tech-free zones uh, around these critical activities. So, for example, telling your child that they can't use social media uh, an hour before bedtime and throughout the night is a way to protect sleep. Making, for example, a dinner time a time where the family is together but where people are not using social media, both kids and adults. Uh, these are all ways that we can create tech-free zones for our kids. Again, none of this is easy. And it's one of the reasons why I'm calling for action from uh, lawmakers as well as from technology companies, because we've got to make it a lot easier for parents to manage these platforms. And we can do that in part by ensuring that they're safe, that the kind of safety standards that I'm calling for would protect kids from exposure to harmful content, from uh, being subject to the kind of features that manipulate their minds to spend more and more time on social media in ways that Compromise, uh, you know, health generating activities like sleep. Um, so these are some of the things that parents can do. But keep in mind, this is tough to do alone. And wherever possible, when you can partner with other parents, we can build strength in numbers.
1: Right. Absolutely. Now, Dr. Murthy, you've been very um, generous and open about the fact that many of these issues you're talking about are things that you have dealt with in your own personal life. Um, for example, when it comes to loneliness, you've Um, sort of put out there that you've had your own personal struggles with loneliness. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience
0: was like so that our listeners can learn from it? You know, when I was uh, served as Surgeon General uh, the first time around, you know, I took it seriously. I worked hard at it, but, but I made a really critical mistake. And that mistake was to assume that in order to do the job to the best of my ability, that I had to put everything else aside, including my relationships and the time that I was investing in family and friends and that turned out to be a big mistake uh, because not only did I not have the sustenance that I needed uh, to keep me going to help prevent burnout, uh, which I ultimately came to experience during the job, but when my job ended and when I was without the team that I had at work and without the work that brought me meaning, I suddenly realized that I had no community. <laughs> And I felt ashamed about that. I felt embarrassed to reach out to friends at that time, even though I was feeling lonely, because I felt like I hadn't exactly been there for them uh, during the last few years. And and I'm grateful that it was my wife, Alice, who recognized what was going on and said to me, you know, you're lonely, you don't have a community. This is something we need to do something about. And so it took time. It took a good year or more. I gradually was able to climb out of that hole. You know, I did it because People like my wife, Alice, continued to believe in me, uh, even though at times I had lost faith in myself. And that's what loneliness does, is it erodes your sense of self-esteem and self-worth. But my parents and my sister, they also, they called me every day to check on me and to remind me, uh, you know, how much they loved me. And there were some friends also who recognized what was happening to me, and and they decided that they were going to step in. Two friends of mine in particular, Sonny and Dave, they got together with me and we decided to form something called a Moai, which is a this is an old Okinawan tradition, but it's a tradition where you know young people come together and they make a commitment to be there for one another. But we realized that despite being good friends for years, we rarely saw each other. We rarely talked to each other because we lived in different cities and we didn't make it a priority. So that day, the uh, way that we had this conversation about our friendship. I still remember we were in Colorado and Colorado Springs walking around a pond and we just looked at each other and we said this time has to be different and we made a commitment in that moment standing by the waters of that lake and we said going forward we're going to video conference once a month we're going to be fully present not distracted by our devices and we're going to talk about the stuff that really matters to us so we don't talk about with friends often enough. Our health our relationships our finances and anything else that's scaring us or worrying us uh, we're gonna be there for one another that Moai my friendship with Sonny and Dave that saved me over the years that followed so I know what it feels like to struggle with loneliness I also know what it feels like to be lifted up
1: now I'm curious if someone is listening to this you know, and they're really taking this message to heart and perhaps they're out there feeling lonely or, you know, they have a friend or a loved one who they suspect is struggling with loneliness. What advice do you have for
0: them? Well, first, what I would say is that if you are struggling with loneliness, know that you are not broken and you are not the only one. Uh, Many of us, uh, if not all of us at some point in our lives will struggle with loneliness. And it's important that you know that this is a very common and normal feeling that people go through. The second thing I would say is to recognize that sometimes small steps can make a big difference in how connected we feel. Simply, for example, spending 15 minutes a day reaching out to people we care about. It could be a phone call or a video conference with a family member or a friend. This might seem like a little amount of time, but it can make a big difference in how connected we feel. And often we'll find that the person we're reaching out to is also feeling disconnected. And lonely given that so many people are. The third thing I would remind you of those like there is something that we all have in our possession that gives us the ability to stretch time, and that is our attention. When we are talking to a friend, a family member, or a work colleague, and when we put aside our devices and give them the benefit of our full attention, it can make five minutes of conversation feel like 30 minutes. Uh, it can Really enrich our experience and deepen our connection. Yet, so many times we do what I am not proud to say I have done, which is when I'm catching up with a friend. Somehow, I find my hand reaching into my pocket, and before I know it, I'm refreshing my inbox. I'm looking at the scores on ESPN. I'm, you know, looking at the news. So, giving people our full attention, putting our devices away when we're talking to family members, or friends, or coworkers, that will change how you feel about the interaction. So. The key is that small steps can make a big difference when it comes to how connected we feel. And we all will go through these up and down cycles of feeling connected and feeling lonely. Uh, But if we recognize that we're not the only ones going through that, if we can summon the courage uh, to reach out to others for that 15 minutes a day and to be present and to find small moments to serve one another, that can make a big difference in helping us rebuild connection in our lives. Well, Dr. Murthy,
1: on that note, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: I'm so glad that we had this conversation. I really enjoyed it.
1: Dr. Vivek Murthy is the Surgeon General of the United States. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Ariel Plotnick. It was edited by Maggie Penman and mixed by Sean Carter. Our team includes Maggie Penman, Rina Flores, Ted Muldoon, Martine Powers, Alahe Azadi, Monica Campbell, Eliza Dennis, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnick, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Svirnovsky, Sabi Robinson, Emma Talkoff, Sean Carter, and Renita Jablonski. I'm Anahad O'Connor, and we'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.
0: podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. AI PCs built for business with Intel Core Ultra processors and Intel vPro are optimized for hundreds of AI apps and tools to boost user productivity, all with AI-powered threat detection. Learn more at intel.com
1: itheroes.